right, people, it is time for Going Off Track, your favorite podcast. I know it is. It's hidden deep within your soul. Welcome. I'm Stephen Smith. As always, is our audio guru, Brad. Hello. Que pasa? The People's Producer, Michael Kanjemi. Yo. Why don't I say your last name, Brad? Because I am the Brad. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. And uh, rock journalist extraordinaire, Jonah Bear. Yes. And today, man, we have a doozy for you. Norman Brannan is on the show. Uh, for those of you who know Norman, you know that originally his name was uh, Norman Arenas, or as we gringos say, Norman Arenas. He was in Shelter. He formed Texas is the Reason. And his life goes from one extreme to the other, and he is an amazing storyteller. And now apparently a teacher. Yes. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, ridiculous. So uh, we're going to learn all kinds of amazing things. We're going to laugh. It's going to be great. Uh, but I have to discuss something very important with Michael Kanjemi. Uh, your functioning penis has created life. A person. <laughs> yes. Yay. Yes. yes, we have. Congrats. Amazing. Congrats. You, you guys, congrats to your lovely wife. Yes, yeah, the craziest experience ever. But you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a small human being. There's a tiny person that yeah we've created that we've made sit staring at me in my apartment now when I come home like hey I have no immune system <laughs> <laughs> don't let anyone near me oh who's that dude trying to kiss me on the face get him away uh, Mike was very kind to let me do uh, FaceTime oh so, yeah so so I'm staring at this baby who's <laughs> stunning and just sitting there and calm meanwhile my two girls are like black climbing crawling all over the place <laughs> it was her first uh yeah it was her first facetime with your daughter so it was pretty awesome she was into it it's like this this this, this <laughs> yeah she's this, totally into it this is your future you yeah. guys should have them form a band or something they totally could i texted mike and i was like it's so amazing that our kids are only be are only going to be you know like less than a year apart and uh uh your second kid oscar brad i mean our almost the same age yeah. exactly uh and mike said yeah they're gonna go to bars together <laughs> <laughs> i know that was literally my first thought i was like ah oh, they'll be going to bars uh, what the fuck am i even thinking <laughs> and my first oh my thought God. was wait go to bars what huh yeah you i'm already there sweet innocent <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready like you know what everyone that's another thing people tell you too is like you have a girl and they're like oh she's gonna be daddy's little girl until she's 13 and then you're a fucking asshole and like she hates you and like you know when it, her, the jess's uncle my wife's uncle like she said the funniest thing she said uh he goes yeah my daughter you loved me until until the day she was like 13 where she told me i was the most embarrassing person in the world and he goes of everyone in the world, I'm the most embarrassing. She's like, you're the worst. It was like for no reason, you know. I'm like, ah, okay. But That's I feel enough. like if you, like when your daughter's a teenager, she'll like try to argue with you and you'll be like, dude, come on. <laughs> like, just knowing your personality. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I really, I honestly, I hear all these stories. I'm like, whatever, dude. I don't know. I don't feel like we'll be like that. But who the fuck knows? You don't have to be like everybody else. Yeah. Exactly. I don't think it's going to be like well, that. Well, there's, I read this article that said like our generation, uh, Gen X, I guess we still are, uh, wants to do everything their parents didn't to an extreme. You yeah. know, it's like, like want to be exactly the opposite <laughs> of the people that brought me up. Right. Yeah, like we just started that where we didn't, uh, Jess didn't drink while she was pregnant, which is cool, like our parents did. Uh, <laughs> we did that. <laughs> I didn't smoke in the apartment, you know. My dad, like my dad did when my mom was pregnant. Uh yeah, that's kind of stuff. Is that what you were talking about, Stephen? <laughs> that's exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're talking about actually having them and, and, oh. and having my mom say, oh, oh yeah, your babysitter up until you were four was a collie. <laughs> 
I'll tell these stories that I think are just like my life stories. And Trish will say, please stop talking. You're making me very sad. (laughs) (laughs) My mom gave us for the girls those um, like bags that you put in a shopping cart. Okay. And I was and she said, "Yeah, I wish we had these for you for you." You remember when you fell out of one and cracked your head on the concrete? <laughs> Boy, I'll never forget that sound. I'm like, "What were you doing?" <laughs> My mom has tons of stories to her. She was like, "Oh, and that other time I fell while I was pregnant with you." And I'm like, "What? You were passed out? Where what happened?" And she's like, "Oh, it wasn't so bad." <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Really? It's all starting to make sense now." I had the experience and and uh I read an article that said, this is going to happen. And when it does, just accept it. Uh, I dropped one of my girls the other day. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you've, uh, there's nothing I could have done because uh, they're getting heavier and uh, I could pick both of them <clears> up. <throat> and I had Emily in my left arm and I was picking Kate up. And luckily we were in my super padded basement, which that didn't come out right at all, did it? <laughs> my super padded basement where they're chained to the wall <laughs> and forced to watch Fraggle Rock and like it. No, very nice carpet with a pad underneath it. It's I've their seen playroom. That car- it's very nice. It's very soft. It's a cute playroom. <laughs> and Kate just slipped out of my arms and fell. And like her, everything, like everything you see, her head flipped back, hit the back, and she starts wailing. And I'm just like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Which means nothing yeah. to an infant who can't form words yet. All she knows is hurt you. <laughs> like you are the cause. Have you had? Did you have that? Uh, I I watched Barrett go over the back. We are. Uh, we have these hardwood floors that um, that's concrete underneath. So, and it's only like it's only about an eighth inch of or a quarter inch of parquet. And uh, this sounds really weird. Um, so our floors are hard. So we do have carpets, but she went over the back of the couch when she was like, I mean, she was under a year old, and right on her head on this wood. And it just, I was like, she's dead. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it's from this high on your head, basically on concrete. I mean, for all practical purposes, the wood wasn't doing anything. I I mean, we took her to the doctor. We did everything. She was fine. And it's like, yeah, I mean, their heads are delicate. You know, they still have a little soft spot. But the thing is, is that these kids are, you know, they're all cartilage, first of all. They're super resilient. I didn't know that. super resilient. Kath's dad was a doctor. And when he was interning here in New York, they brought in, like, three-month-old that had fallen out of a fourth-story window. Oh, my God. And they couldn't find anything wrong with it. Yeah. it's it's uh, Since I have two, uh, you know, one of them will inevitably just whack the other one with a toy. And, or two days ago, Emily just fell, and I watched her fall, and I was <clears> holding <throat> the other one, and I watched her face hit a toy that she's played with, and it didn't look like anything. Boom, she's got this big bruise on her face, like gigantic. Next day, gone. Yeah, I mean, I've like what? all children are Wolverine. That was gonna say I, that they do heal like Wolverine. Like she came out, even our our baby came out with like she was like scratching herself, and she had you know because she had you know cooked for an extra week, and her nails had like fully developed, and she like came out and she had like these little like big gashes oh, yeah. on her face, and then one of my friends was like, "Don't worry, like they'll be gone in like an hour," and I was like, "No way!" I turned around, and she was just totally fine. I was like, "Hey, <laughs> do that I, again." <laughs> I feel like judging by the number of French presses I've broken, I can never have kids. <laughs> That's the only thing I'm taking away from this conversation. <laughs> All right, let's chat with uh, Norman Brandon. It's going on I made up my last name, so. Yo, where did your last name come from? <laughs> the U.S. Census report? No. Yeah. I, I picked it. Like, really? Like seven years ago? Eight years ago? 
Yeah. Was it down to like a couple and then you had to like narrow it down? Like I sort of like this one, but this it, one flows better with Norman. It was actually like it was okay. So the there somewhere there's some census uh, website that has like the top five thousand surnames in America. So I was like, all right, well, if I guess if I'm looking for a new last name, I should probably look at this. You know, maybe I'll find something. And I literally went through everyone, and and I had I had some criteria. So one was that um, I wanted it to be fairly easy to spell, easy to pronounce, and also I can't personally know someone who has that last name. So, you know, a lot of names were just crossed off the list. I know a lot of people, so I couldn't, you know, Bayer, I tried that. <laughs> that would have been a good one. Smith was definitely a no-go. Yeah, it's, it's the bane of my life. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so I start um, going through, I literally went through all 5,000 names, and when something would hit, then the next step of the situation was I had to kind of imagine what it would look like as a signature because I'm a little bit prissy about handwriting and signatures. Like, I, I wanted it to be cool. And I never liked my birth name because it made for a bad signature. It was just bad. What was, is that what prompted it? You just wanted to have a name change? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've just had, I've had family issues for, like, my entire life. Okay. And I, I decided that my old name had... A lot of baggage attached to it from my family, and I wanted a name where, like, all the baggage was just attached to me. So okay. that was, you know, so if I fuck up this name, I, I did it. <laughs> it's my problem. I'm sorry, Brannons of America. So, yeah, so then I, I, I came up with Brannon, and unfortunately that was B, which meant I probably had, like, 4,000 other names to go through before I was like, all right, I'm going to have this name anyway. And then I went to a lawyer and had it done. So you That's, still haven't – have you ever met another Brandon or no? Still? Uh, different spelling of Brandon. Okay. Like uh, – I mean I knew like Justin Brandon from Indecision, um, but he's – Spelled with A N at the end, and mine is O N. So that's still yes. counted. That's different. That was different. Yeah. The O N is definitely different. Oh, we should amazing. probably say that our guest today is Norman Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, from a lot of amazing bands. Yeah. Um, you may know him under a different name, but this is his name now. <laughs> Texas is a reason. Well, what's beautiful, honestly, is that it's been so long. Now it has been a long time. A lot of people don't even. Know I don't that think I, I knew you name. before. Like no, we met when I was Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I love it. I recommend it to everyone, changing yeah. your name. I think it's brilliant. See, I, <laughs> God, I really wish I had done that. Well, when, you have such a unique name that you probably wouldn't <laughs> want to mess with it. And my grandfather's name is John. Wow. It's awful. I hate my name. And it's, <laughs> you know, after 10 years of a career, well, I guess it's, I haven't done anything for three, so seven years of a career, um, I could probably change it to something. What's interesting is we found out that when – the French folk that I'm descended from on my dad's side got off the boat. Their last name was De Morel. And then they changed it to Smith because apparently someone else island was like, too many vowels. Wow. And just switched it up. But that's we're not drastic, though. Yeah, we're not sure if that's actually it. And I just think De Morel is weird. <laughs> What's your middle name? Here's the other I was just going to bring this up. Uh-oh. My middle name is Stephen. Oh. My first name is Jeffrey. And my mother thought it would be interesting to go by my middle name and also ruin my life. <laughs> but you see, now, if I were you, I, I probably would, would have went for the uh, like literary version of my name, like J. Stephen Smith. High school. That's what I was. I was J. Stephen Smith forever. I love it. And I went through a, a period of thinking, well, if I get before I got hired, you know, I was like, well, I'll, I'll, my professional name will be J, but all my friends will call me Stephen. 
I think that's a great and just be the, be the be the letter J. And I just didn't have the balls to do it. But I did have the balls to change the spelling for Stephen to two E's and an I, like a dipshit. <laughs> oh, yeah, I when I was at VH1. I was so, so did it actually say that, like when you were on air? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Oh, it was, oh yeah. There's footage. Were you just like a really big fan of like the bull weevils and stuff, or like? <laughs> For some reason, when I think of that spelling, and that's I see where it, it like, goes. And the tele- like <laughs> below you, like scrawled in like some weird handwriting, <laughs> like Stephen. Everyone else has a very nice font. And mine's yeah. all finger paint. Yeah. <laughs> finger paint with you know the H backwards. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. I think that is fascinating. You uh, change your name to one uh, escape the baggage of your family to have your own baggage claim, as you if you will. Uh, Smith, I don't have to worry about that. But my mom's side of the family, there's a lot. So I luckily that's nowhere associated. <laughs> well, the other the other aspect of that too is that you know for a long time everyone called me Norm, mm-hmm. and then at some point I just started asserting Norman, and it really caught on. Did the same thing. I was if you talk to anyone who from college down south before, uh, it was Steve, and to this day it weirds out my wife when people are like is Steve there and she's like. <laughs> who that is but yeah it's a big deal and how did you do it how did you say it's norman when people would ask well i just realized that these things take time so i realized that i just had to keep going out and when new people met me they would they would meet me as norman they would start calling me norman other people just started calling me norman again it's really weird the only people that call me norm are like maybe my two best friends that i've known for like 25 years yeah that's about it. Do you find that if you meet someone named like Nicholas or David that you are – and they say, this is, I'm Nicholas, I'm David, that you are more inclined than un- others to not shorten it to Dave or Nick? No, that's what's actually funny is like I'm the first person <laughs> to be like, hey, Nicky, what's up? You know, like I don't care. <laughs> well, you, you know what I thought was funny? We were at a show two nights ago, Arena Norman, and uh, I was talking to a new bunch of people at the show whatever, and – I introduced like my friend and he was like I was like, Oh, this is my friend and he's like, Oh, I know who you are, like I'm a big fan. <laughs> like, does that happen a lot? Kind of like are people like Well, I mean not so much anymore. <laughs> no, actually it does I mean it happens regularly. It's yeah. it's nice. I think yeah. it's cool. Like, I mean, when I meet people that I really like for whatever reason that they've done, I usually say the same thing. Right. You know, um, because I don't want to like be that guy who's like totally feigning disinterest, like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, awesome person that I love. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, that's lame. That's lamer than just being like, I'm a fan. Right. You know, like Blair from Jealous Sound, you know, like we, we've kind of like been within one degree of each other for like 20 years. And I've never met him, never been in the same room. Well, I was in the same room room with him once when Knapsack played a show and I was in the audience, but that was about it. And uh, and he just kind of Facebooked me very randomly and we were talking and I just the first thing I said was, I've been a fan for 20 years, so it's really nice to meet you. And then we got to hang out this week. That was great. Yeah. That's, that's nice that you have the wherewithal to do that. If I meet somebody that I'm a big fan of, and Jonah can attest because he's been there, I'm not allowed to talk because I get really fanny <laughs> and I'm like, you, okay. Well, that's not true. You've interviewed tons of people. Yeah, I'm not fans of them. Well, some of them. <laughs> some of them, yes. But some of them, yes. But like when the people, my, my wife's favorite story is I interviewed Madonna. And it was a fun interview. It was really nice. The next week, John Reese from Jehu and Rocket and, and all these awesome bands came in to talk for the Night Marchers. And I was visibly like, 
I was hurt. I was like, I don't know. I can't go in and talk to him. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, Stephen also, keep in mind that Stephen also got a tattoo, a rocket tattoo on the air the week before. On the air? Oh, yeah. That's and then bold. showed it to him. Wow. And we were, gonna, we were trying to do it at, at the show, like while he was doing the interview. Was this was like some kind after of the band broke up? Yes. So you didn't even get to capitalize on the free shows for life thing. That's because I'm such a fan. <laughs> Waited till after they were done before. I got it. When when I played in Shelter, um, we played a Harry Krishna school in Alachua, Florida, and that was kind of a trip. Like, yeah. Um, because it was literally two kids. Um, I mean, probably between the ages of six and sixteen or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, they were going crazy. I mean, they're they're Harry Krishna kids. They probably right, have right. never seen anything like this. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was super fun because um, kids don't judge you, and adults do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny because everything I know about Harry Krishna is from uh, John Joseph's memoir. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. You may need to broaden your scope. <laughs> Not that I've, I've never read that book, actually. I've only heard pieces of the audio book. Yeah, that's what I was I haven't to. heard yeah. that. But it's interesting, like, especially I was reading it when I was living in the East Village and just hearing him talk about what it was like, like, hanging out with, like, HR and, like, the 80s, like, in the Alphabet City and how crazy it was. <clears throat> yeah. Um. Are you still involved in, like, the Christian stuff at all? Mm, no. So I mean, I have friends. Like, you know, I was involved for a long time. I got yeah. I got in in, like, 89 when, um, like, you know, in the 80s in New York, the Krishnas were kind of a fixture in kind of the subculture of New York. Um, and when you, if you hung out, especially in what was called the Lower East Side, but now it's kind of more the East Village, um, you know, they used to hang out in Tompkins Square Park. And if you go to Tompkins Square Park now, there's still a tree with a plaque dedicated to the founder of the Hare Krishna movement because it's kind of like the tree that he sat under and basically started the entire movement in oh, that wow. park. So the Krishnas wow. go there a lot. And um, they used to be there every Sunday feeding people. <clears throat> and I was, you know, broke vegetarian kid. They had free vegetarian food. Yeah, man. Right, it was right. awesome. <laughs> so I'd go there, especially like on Sundays if I was at CB's or whatever. And um, and then I would say like I started reading the books and then um, a friend of mine, my like my very best friend died in a car accident in May of 1990. And that took my life into a drastically different direction because, you know, then you start going like, oh, crap, like I'm going to die. <laughs> and uh and then all of a sudden you want all the answers and i want them now right right and and so i would say that of all the religions that exist um theirs is a very um what should i say Th- there's there's reasonable components to it that don't exist in other religions um there's still a huge jump of blind faith that you mm-hmm. have to make and they're still very insane uh, stories and myths that you uh, you know that guide it, but under underneath all that, there's also like a philosophy that's semi reasonable and logical. And I was attracted to that, and then maybe you know accepted all the other stuff. Um, unfortunately, as trappings. <laughs> so, were you into hardcore before you got into Krishna, or did you yeah. get into Krishna and then? No, no, okay. I I I, I got into hardcore in like '86 from listening to like Crucial Chaos, which was like the WNYU radio program. Are you from here? Yeah, I grew okay. up in Queens. Okay. And yeah, so I mean, I I found NYU like 
by accident one night and I just started listening to this show. It was just completely like I'd never heard anything like it. I remember one of the first bands I ever heard on that show was Butthole Surfers. And I was like, you know, I was a kid and I was just like, this is hilarious. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then they would bring all the New York bands to play live sets at 10 o'clock. So, you know, you'd hear Murphy's Law and Super Touch and Judge played and Crucial Youth and and like one point. um, So many bands. And uh, and then, you, you know, I wanted to know what it was all about. So I started checking it out. And there was an all – I was very young. I was like 13. So I couldn't really go to like a ton of shows when I first started listening to the radio program. But I found this all-ages show on Long Island uh, to see the Crumb Suckers. I mean, come on. I'm a kid. They have cartoon album covers. Their name is the Crumb Suckers. Yeah. This is awesome. They're the best band in right. the world to me. And I, you know, got my shirt autographed and I was like so psyched going to school the next day with my autographed Crumb Suckers t-shirt. And that kind of just, you know, started it. It took me a second to figure out that I could sneak into CBGBs as a 14-year-old and, and then I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and also, once you're, once you're around long enough, they stop IDing you and they, they kind of just know right. who you are. Right. So, so forgive me. How old are you? 38 this 38, year. 38, okay. Yeah. yeah. So we're like the same. See, see how much cooler... Like that is like when I was fourteen, it was Cinderella. There is nothing harder than this band. <laughs> and where did I live? Oh, not like anywhere, not near a you know a huge cultural point. Eighty six. I was outside of DC. Oh, was anything cool happening there musically? No, no, no. When at did all. I get into it? Oh, I don't know. Ugh. Well, eighty seven, eighty eight. So that was well, too bad. I I realized too that it's it's ridiculous because my godson is fourteen this year, and you know. I don't know. Like, I couldn't imagine him doing the stuff that I was doing when I was 14 years old. Like, basically, I just had, you know, parents who didn't give a shit about me. So I could hang out on the Lower East Side and just, mm-hmm. you know, go to these shows and get beat up. Was it neglect or was it was it a weird trust? Um, no, I mean, they just didn't, you know, it was, it was a complicated story, that mm-hmm. house. But they ultimately... You know, I kind of just didn't listen to them after a while because I felt like your authority means nothing to me. <laughs> and uh, and they didn't really have the the follow through to discipline me in any way. So um, because, you know, once it doesn't hurt anymore when you beat me, it's kind of like we're done. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they didn't. So so the combination of uh, fear, wasn't a fear, guilt, abuse thing. It was just abuse. Fine. I'm out. Right, exactly. Ugh. And then it was just, I'm just going to do my own thing. And, you know, and as soon as I turned 16, I dropped out of school and left the house. So, Oh, wow. And then where'd you go? Uh, I wandered around on people's couches for a while. Then I became a monk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I joined the Harry Christian movement for a couple of years. And then, um, and then I kind of just started the touring life. And, and that was, um, you know, with Resurrection and then 108 and then Shelter. So those three bands kind of thrust me into adulthood um, somehow. Now, when I first heard Shelter when in Virginia, um, there was you know this big you know in the uh, '90s like this weird like they would call it Krishna conscious veg edge, and I was like, I've had enough. I don't. This, I'm done. <laughs> this is how's the band? Right, Does it sound good. But when I was in high school. Uh, my best friend from high school who got me into everything, who's responsible for all the music I'm into, Minor Threat to Jawbreaker, everything. Uh, he would listen to Shelter. 
but he was, and he still is, one of those very, he's kind of like uh, our friend Mike Dubin, you know, very hardcore, straight edge still, the kind of, you know, a little angry underneath. You know? mm-hmm. And he was like, man, shelter, they'll knock the beers out of your hands on the way to the stage. <laughs> and there was all this this rumor and innuendo to the band. And at the time, I was all part of it. And I was like, oh, wow, let's go see them. This is amazing. I never, he saw you guys a lot, but I never got to see them. But, um, I don't know if that was ever true, but it's such a fun myth that followed the band. That's really funny. I mean, I've never heard that myth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep I my mean, coffee over here just because in case. Every, everybody in that band were total wimps. <laughs> Although I do, someone told me that Ray teaches yoga classes, and I really want to check he's, it out. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he teaches high-level yoga these yeah. days. Because like, the like, that... he probably does like acrobatic stuff, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, he's, he's kind of insanely fit, insanely like flexible yes insanely strong i mean you just see pictures of him standing on one hand no like, totally hey, what's up guys you know like it's crazy but he's always had that it's, yeah it's just a bizarre yeah that's what it know. seems like because I, I never saw shelter but i saw better than a thousand a lot when when they were touring and i remember like oh there's ray's like standing on one hand or something like yeah he's just <laughs> he's like plastic man or yeah. something it's completely crazy but yeah i mean i think it's awesome that he's really uh i mean because the one thing about Ray Capo is that he's he's definitely one of, if not the most charismatic person I've ever met. The guy can get anybody to follow him to do anything. So it was, you know, Youth of Today, of course, everybody's going to become straight edge. Shelter, of course, everybody's going to become a Hare Krishna. Like now he's got this like yoga following that's like that love him just as much. Yeah. You know, it's it's really insane to me how much charisma. Well, I when had. I was at that show, I actually bought he had a self-help CD. <laughs> so keep in mind, I went to the, the Better Than a Thousand shows, like Better Than a Thousand and Battery and like In My Eyes. It was like some rev thing. And uh, I bought Krishna Beads and like the Ray Kappa self-help CD. And I remember it was like, I listened to it and like did it. was like, make a, make, make a change journal and like list all the things you want to change about your life. And like I, I was like 17 or something. I totally did it. Like I had this journal I would draw it. That's probably night, not and, the like, worst idea. No, it was cool. It was cool. But I never, <laughs> I never would have done it under any other context and like, Self help to do, but it's got Ray Cap on the cover, and he's right. sitting here. And he, he was like, "You can email me," and I was like, "Yeah, I'll definitely do this." Um, yeah, and here I am now. So, so do you still have the beads? <laughs> I don't, but I, I I got a lot of use out of those beads. I wore them for years. Yeah, you did. Those beads were like a gateway drug for a lot of people. Yeah, because they I, were really people wanted them. I yeah. had the beads. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking. I was like, "What happened to the Krishna beads I had? I had them in college." What's I had a shaved on? head, jinkos, and Krishna beads. The first time I nice. ever went to a Krishna temple was specifically because, um, all right, so this would have been in 19, I think maybe 88 or 89. But um, so, you know, there was this famous Chromax picture that would always get published everywhere. And, and two of the guys, I think it was Paris and Harley, were wearing, you know, these really just like tight Krishna beads around their necks and it just like you know they had these bulging necks and stuff it just looked so manly and I was like yeah I want those beads you know but I didn't know what they were and uh, a friend of mine from high school his older brother was a hardcore kid and he was like oh those are Harry Krishna beads and so we started doing the research went to a temple in Freeport Long Island and we're completely mortified. Like, I didn't even get to stay and buy the beads. Like, the first time I went to a Christian temple, I ran out because I was scared. <laughs> what, what scared you? Um, it's, it's stupid, and I don't even know if this would make sense unless you've seen it. There's, um, okay, the founder of the movement, Prabhupada, mm-hmm. he, um, 
in every Krishna temple, they have what's called a morti of him, which is basically just a wax figure of him. It's, it's you know, it's he sits there in the temple room. And uh, it freaked me out. I don't know why. Like, I just saw this wax figure of this guy sitting there. And at first I thought he was real. Then I realized he wasn't. And then I was like, where the hell am I? This is scaring me. And <laughs> I mean, I was like 14. So I was like, I'm running out of here. Goodbye. No, um, <laughs> What's funny about that is that my whole religious thing was kind of um, bookended in a few few ways. So I was raised in a fundamentalist, evangelical, Pentecostal Christian family. That's one of the reasons why it was not a great experience. And and so I had rejected religion kind of as a kid just because I felt like this is the reason why I'm miserable. And then when my friend died – um, you know, I'd already kind of been hanging out with the Hare Krishnas and that started to make sense to me and more and more sense. And I'm definitely the type of person who does things in extremes. And so of course, like I was like, yeah, okay, I'm moving into a temple and I'm going to be a monk. See y'all later. And, <laughs> and I did, and I'm glad I did that. I, I actually, I learned so much, I think from, uh, from that entire experience. But then in 2003, I was hit by a tow truck and almost died and was in the hospital for two months. And, um, and when, you're in, you know, when you're in the hospital for two months and you can't walk because your pelvis is broken in two places and you're just kind yeah. of like sitting around, you have nothing to do but live with yourself and think and do all this um, reflecting. And my feeling at that point had been that, um, that God or religion or all these things had just kind of become – a part of the fabric of my life, but not necessarily a meaningful part. Like I didn't necessarily know that I like proactively believed anymore. Um, And the more I thought about it and the more I kind of like, you know, held these beliefs up to, you know, a more critical light, the more I realized that I didn't. And it was more like I was almost like culturally religious. Like a lot of Jewish people that I know say that like, Oh, I'm more culturally religious than like practicing religious. Like, it was just that, you know, the Hare Krishna movement is like a culture. There's food and there's dance and there's art and there's all these things that I really appreciate. I love India. Mm-hmm. I spent so much time there. I think it's an amazing place. So I want to go back. Um, and I love the people. But did I believe it? No, if I was being honest with myself. Mm-hmm. And so then it just kind of had to be the slow ride out because it had been at that point almost 15 years of practicing in some way do you still associate with the community like can you yeah i mean like my guru the person who initiated me and uh gave me a new name and all that stuff i had another name even (laughs) my krishna name was naratam das but uh they don't have any krishna names where it's like you are mike (laughs) (laughs) no you badass guru (laughs) for this day forward jonah you are now bruce well the the um there's there's a rhyme and reason. Okay. Every every boy has the surname Das. Every girl has the name the surname Davy Dasi, which is just the feminine version of the word. Mm-hmm. They both mean servant. And then the first name is a name of Krishna or one of his uh like disciple like not disciples, but um or like a saint or somebody in the right. movement who's like a saint. And uh and so like Naratam the name that I was named after was uh, this Bengali saint, Naratam Das Thakur. And he was uh, famous for his poetry and music. And so I think my guru maybe thought that that was 
nice, a nice name. Right on. So, uh, but yeah, so I talked to him and we're still friends, like, um, which is great because he's known me. He's probably like always been like the father figure that mm-hmm. I never really had. So even when I left the movement, I was like, so I still like you. Can we just like talk? And he was like, yeah, of course. And so we still have that relationship. It's cool. That's key. Yeah. No, uh, just to rewind a second. Hit by a tow truck? <laughs> you got to unpack that statement a little bit more. Um, Please tell me it wasn't your fault. It wasn't. Okay. And I've got a lawsuit to prove it. Um, Good. It was, uh, yeah, no, it was like at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was the day after um, Coheed and Cambria and Thursday played in San Francisco. <laughs> They're responsible. Um I yeah no I went to go see them play and then the next day I so wait I, there was understanding in this car crash yeah <laughs> I'm always the guy that makes the Thursday puns I'm so glad someone else did it <laughs> well yeah I mean it was there was it was there was an understanding it was deep I'm gonna write a song about it and, uh, <laughs> but uh, no so yeah so one morning the next morning at nine o'clock I went to I had just moved so I went to my old apartment to pick up my bike it was the last thing there. And I was crossing the street, and I had the right of way, and a tow truck didn't oh. seem to care <laughs> and just turned into me. And I don't remember any of it. I honestly wouldn't have even remembered the show if it wasn't in my iCal. Um, like, basically, the week before and the week after are just a complete blur. Wow. And uh, it wasn't in, like, I remember waking up in the hospital and seeing my brother and being like, what the fuck is he doing here like i was completely just and what the fuck am i doing here so were you in a coma that? at all you were completely i was unconscious for okay. like three days because i had cranial bleeding and so they God. were kind of waiting for to decide whether or not they were going to drill a hole into my head to yeah. relieve the pressure and thank god they did not <laughs> i heard something about you it affecting your sense of smell or something yeah i lost it completely so you can't smell anything nothing how's your taste uh, fine. They, okay. um, yeah, the neurologist, I was concerned about that too. And the neurologist basically said, you know, all the senses intersect in some mm-hmm. way, but none more than others. So it's not like taste and smell are necessarily like, uh, so connect, so more connected than any of the other senses that, you know, one is going to really suffer. Um, and if anything, I've realized that, um, without smell, my taste is actually heightened. It feels nice. because like I'm more conscious of other things that are going on that maybe would have gone to the smell, uh, you know, section of my brain. I guess if all to lose, that's the one that would be top of everyone's list. Well, here's the thing. Smell is associated with memory. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't and, know that. And so I had, um, like, I had, like, 12 or even 15 tests taken at a neurologist's office. And uh, oddly enough, the one test that I really bombed was visual memory. And I don't know what the connection is, but they were like, damn. Like, like what, what's like a visual memory? Like, Well, I haven't actually – okay, they gave me a test called the Wisconsin card sorting test. Oh, that one. Do you know it? I have no idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I've, I, they told me not to Google it in case I ever wanted to take it again and see if I've improved. Okay. And so I still don't know what, the, okay. what it was all about. All I know is that it's a, it's a stack of cards – and each card has um, a different number of shapes and or colors. So it might be like four yellow circles, three green triangles, you know, whatever. And then they give you the stack. They lay out four cards kind of solitaire style. And then you take one card off the stack, you put it on, 
and the person who's administrating the exam will then say correct or incorrect. And you have to kind of create these patterns in your head. So you put down the card and they're like, correct, correct. But, of course, I put down the card and they're like, wrong, 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 wrong. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? So I finally – Stop yelling at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's really stressful. Especially, you know, it's like, can you imagine if you were taking a test in high school and there was someone sitting over your shoulder going, wrong, wrong, wrong. Like, that's how it felt. So I was – You've met my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm sure that's what I'm like. I'm teaching now. (laughs) But um, anyway, so yeah, the – at, at some point, I got a pattern, and it started being right, 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 and I was like, awesome, and I stuck to my rules, and then it started being wrong, wrong, wrong again. And, yeah, so that's that's that. I know, I don't know what it is. I just know that I suck at it. I mean, the, the fact that you're you know still with us and talking and conversing and doing everything is great. And were you on your bike when they hit you? Were you riding? No, I was walking. See? <laughs> I, I hate bicyclists in New York City because they don't <laughs> obey the same laws that cars do like they're supposed to. Well, it's a different culture, though. I mean, this happened in Oakland. And oh, okay. in California, it's it's pretty much the cars are just like, fuck you if you're on my street. Yeah. In New York, I do feel like the cars, you're less likely to get hit as a pedestrian or a biker in New York, even though it seems like you're more likely to get hit. Because I think the drivers are hypersensitive to these other potentially moving objects. Well, now you're more likely to get hit by a bicyclist. That's true. Yeah, that actually. is true. <laughs> yeah. Especially when I was at, like living in these village, I put in all the bike lanes, and I was like, I have a walk sign, but I need to stop and look because there's probably some dude like just cruising through. Yeah, I'm just gonna. And walk it, the this. delivery guys, I gotta say, props to you, delivery guys, but dudes, you gotta stop riding on the sidewalk and yeah. riding against the traffic. Not supposed to. <laughs> so much shit. But then it's like you get these people on the upper east side, like these congressmen, are like we need to outlaw this. And it's like you guys are ordering like. Delivery, like everyone's like, or like there's a reason why these guys are like busy. Like, make your own dinner, and you know what I mean, right? Limited to nothing but rollerblades. It's like I just feel like it's hard to complain about something when like you're benefiting from it too. Mm-hmm. And I, I admit that I order delivery. I do every too, day. but <laughs> I do too. But I, yeah, oh, how those I miss dudes. It. And now they have like motorized things, which is like way scarier. What? Like those motorized bikes. I feel like now they're on like these like what, hybrid like Vespas? mopeds. Yeah, like like mopeds sort of. Like I've seen mopeds. They're making a comeback. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I have not seen that. Pedal start yeah. cruise. Um, um is a great segue. <laughs> it means a lot. So um. then you're in some band, Texas is a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that band. You know how, you know yeah. how I first heard of your band? We've talked about this this album before. Uh Now Core. <laughs> no I, way. Are you I serious? First heard of Texas is the reason, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. the first time I've ever heard that. That's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. I I forget that that album even exists. What what is that? I don't remember it's, this. It's KTEL. Uh, KTEL presents. You yeah. might not remember KTEL. KTEL I, used to put out like oh Freedom God. Rock and all these classic. I remember rock like the the infomercials and stuff. Yeah, so KTEL had a, a restructuring and they put out this. God, we talked about. I don't remember talking about this at all. Damn it! I have memory issues myself. <laughs> we recorded it, so we'll, we should play it back now. Brad, where's Brad? Uh, so the record is I might have it on my iPod right now. It's Nowcore weird funky cover on the side of the cover lists all the bands and it's Promise Ring at the drive-in Texas is the reason Drive Like Jehu Modest Mouse um, Jawbox Yeah 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 Kim Coletta I think had a lot to do with it somehow I it's, think it's great I sold all my CDs as one of the few that I kept because it's so crazy. I don't was it like one. B-Sides or was it like Jawbox, Savory? Like, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was just like, Jawbox, like Emo's Greatest Hits. Like. Ice of Boston. <laughs> what um, Texas song was on it? I don't even remember. 
I have no I idea. I have it. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. It's crazy. It's I mean, that wasn't even the type of thing that we would potentially even say yes to. I don't even think there was a lot of money involved, but yeah. it was just KTEL. We were like, we have to be yeah. on the KTEL record. Like so many it's people hilarious. <laughs> That's incredible. And now I'm I'm completely psyched that somebody actually listened to it and heard it for the first time. Because, you know, you don't think that. Right, right. I had this realization. This was actually kind of funny. So, okay. I've only sold songs to two commercials in, in, in my career. So Texas sold a song to Mercedes-Benz for a commercial. And New End Original sold a song to Coca-Cola. And I've never seen the Coca-Cola commercial. Um... But I and part it was only it only aired in Australia, New Zealand, and like Thailand, I think. Okay. Um, and there's a whole story to that. But point being, I've never seen it because I don't live in any of those places, and it just doesn't exist to me. But um, I was putting I've, I've been trying to kind of put together a personal website where I want to try to archive as much of everything that I've ever done, like down to the littlest itty bitty weird detail. Like I sang backups on this album or whatever it is. Right. Um, things that people wouldn't even necessarily know or care or like identify me with, because like really, like when you're in a group of gang backup vocals, it's right. not like oh I gotta get that because Norm's on that, right? But like okay, so I was like I know that the um, you can find the Mercedes commercial on YouTube, so like I was like okay I can put that in, but this Coca Cola commercial it has to exist somewhere, so I started googling it and I found all these bulletin boards like. Uh, from like New Zealand and Australia of people going what's the song on that commercial it's fucking awesome and then other people like that's new and original lukewarm here's a link to their album you know and I'm like commercials work (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of mind-blowing because you know you do those things and really you just kind of do them because it's just like okay this sounds interesting it's fun it's a little money it's great but you know I I don't know. Maybe I've always just been too cynical. Like, I just think, like, nobody gets a song off a commercial. How many people got into Iggy Pop from Carnival Cruise Lines? I don't know. How many you think? Really? Seven. <laughs> Seven. <laughs> At least. <laughs> but I feel like that's, like, a thing, like, when you're creating stuff, it feels like you're in a vacuum a lot of time. Like, even when I worked at AP, like, people would be like, oh, I love that article you wrote. I was like, you read that? <laughs> like, it's just, like, the thing where, like, you put it together every month, and then you're done, and you're like, well, right. I don't have to think about that anymore. That's true. That's true. I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I I guess it doesn't really... I still feel like I'm, I'm coming from a different place where I think now people think of commercials as the way to get people to hear your music. And it just... Maybe I just missed the boat on that paradigm. Well, I think it's also one of the few ways to make money now, like, yeah, to kind of compensate for album sales. Well, yes. I mean, an iPod commercial is more spins than you're ever going to get on any radio station, college, Pandora, other, you know. It's... But that's interesting, too, because that's iPod. Like, it's still like a, a a commercial that's generally being aimed towards music listeners. Mm-hmm. So they would be more, like, psyched to be like, what's that Vice song or, like, whatever. Right. But, you know, like, Coke or Mercedes-Benz. Like, I don't know that anybody ever bought anything from the Mercedes-Benz commercial. (laughs) Budweiser Platinum or whatever, Bud Light Platinum something. It's Kanye West. And my first thought is, did he really need to just tap into that extra zero into his bank account to get this? (laughs) And I was like, I like that song. And now it's a commercial. Well, I guess I used to hate it when I hear a song with a commercial. And over time, I was like, "Ah, who cares? You know, good for them making money. Well, that was like the thing with Coke. Like they originally wanted to do lukewarm for an international campaign. 
And we were really like, wow, that would really change the entire scope of that song, like in the way that people listen to it forever. Like, do we want it, do we want lukewarm to be like, um, I want to buy the world a Coke, like to kind of keep that, um, mm-hmm. part in people's cultural memories. Right. And, uh, and the, I think that there was kind of like this feeling of like, no, but if they were going to give us a ridiculous amount of money, we can write another song. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, anyway. What was that process like of New Line Original with, with, with Jonah Matrenga? Because... I didn't realize that one line drawing you rearrange that spells out new end original. Right. So I was I for the longest time thought that new end original was literally one line drawing with a band. Well, okay, like that band basically didn't become what it was supposed to be ever. Like it was it's it's a bum out. We kind of did everything very um we thought we were being well thought out but we totally weren't. Like mm-hmm. it was um we had a lot of bad ideas. Basically the only reason the band was called New and Original in the first place was because we had booked our first show before we'd even have a name. And we were just like, oh, shit, we've got to do something. And so Jonah had this idea. He's like, all right, I made all these anagrams. Does it, does it do any of these work? And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that one. Ah. And so that just became the name. And we hated that name pretty much five minutes after we named it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even like... When, when we were at the kind of coming towards the end of the band, we were thinking like, maybe we should just be New End and just drop the original and just kind of like start over. Um, but the idea originally was that Jonah and I were going to, you know, write all these new songs and we had all these like really ambitious plans for what this, what this band was going to be. But I had just moved from Chicago to San Francisco at that point to do this band. I was, you know, in a situation where I was like, shit, I need to start making money soon. And I don't know, like, how can I do this? So we were like, all right, Let's just take a bunch of songs that already exist. Let's, you know, I'll, I'll, I basically took all the one line drawing songs and kind of rewrote them, uh, you know, in different ways. And then, you know, kept some the way they were, changed others more drastically, added some parts, took some parts out. And then we were basically like, okay, here's, here's an album. Let's make it really quick and start getting on the road, making money, and then make the album we really want to make. And so that just didn't work out the way we planned. Like we made, we made the album. The recording was a disaster. <laughs> what we, oh man! Um, I mean, probably the most drastic things that were going down. I mean, Jonah was having personal issues. I mean, he was like freaking out in the studio. Charlie, our drummer, was like having personal issues with the, his wife and like money and all this stuff, and he was freaking out. Then, like for some reason we did all the bass tracks tuned to this like tuner that was in the studio and not to our pedal tuners. And when they were all finished and I started recording my guitar tracks, I was like, why does this sound completely fucked up? And I couldn't figure it out. I thought I was like, I sound completely flat. Like what's going on? And it turns out that, you know, the tuner that was used for the bass tracks was calibrated wrong. And so we basically had to start over from scratch and we only had like X amount of time because we were on J tree and they don't have tons of money. And we were just, and we, then we, you know, we probably recorded that album literally like in three days because we had no choice, but to, you know, do everything over. Um, Yeah. And it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. It's it's a bum out. I mean, because I like the songs. I think it's a good record, like technically, but it didn't. It wasn't executed the way it should have been. And then we just we went on tour, and then everything just exploded and just sucked. 
<laughs> was that had you played in bands since then? Because <laughs> Trevor, like the first thing when, when you were coming on, Trevor was like, <laughs> "That's hi-fi." I hope you got the rights for that, dude. <laughs> no, I stopped it at uh, 16 seconds. Um, I want publishing on that. I know how that works. <laughs> Didn't it have to be 30 to get publishing? So is it true that you were almost in the Foo Fighters? Uh, well, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I never talk about it. It's, and I, I barely even like remember it. Like I was watching the Grammys this year, and I was like, oh, yeah, I played with those guys. Like That was weird. Um, it was just That was just a weird thing. I was living in Chicago, and uh, their tour manager, who's been around for a long time, he was like an old hardcore guy who booked shows in Florida, Calls me up out of nowhere. Wait, like, I know this dude. Gus Brandt. Yeah. Yeah. And Gus calls me up and he's just like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. He's like, are you in a band? No. Do you want to be in Foo Fighters? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like uh, sure. Uh, what do I got to do? He's like, can you come to LA this week? And I was like, fuck, okay. Um, what do I, do I have to learn stuff? And he's like, yeah, learn as many songs as you can in two days. And I was like, okay. And so I sat down. I didn't even own the records. I went to, you know, what was what was that record store coconuts yeah that a, yeah i went to coconuts yeah. in chicago <laughs> and bought the two albums for like 50 dollars because they're so expensive and uh <laughs> and then and then just learned like as many songs as i possibly could and flew to la um and then just sat down and played with them for like an hour and change and it was like such a weird thing i mean the whole thing was just they those guys were really cool. I remember I walked in and Nate was wearing a Joan of Arc shirt, and you know I was coming in from Chicago at the time, and I was like, "That's awesome, man! Those guys are my friends. Like, great, you know." Um, and and Dave was really nice. I remember he was like, "So yeah, what what uh, what happened to Texas is the reason," and I was like, "You know, lead singers, man." <laughs> he, he, seemed, he seemed to appreciate that, um, and it was yeah. So it was it was. And it was it was totally surreal to be playing these songs with these guys. And um, but at the end of the day, honestly, I'm pretty happy that it worked out the way it did because I hadn't. They had just recorded their third record at that point, and um, I hadn't heard it yet. And to be honest, I don't like it. <laughs> so, and I really actually don't like the direction that they went in. So I'm I kind of feel like it worked out for the best. Yeah. <laughs> are you Are you in the documentary? No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. So this was like post Pat Smear, or he was in the band in the beginning. I'm confused yeah. on the according whole. To the, like, according to the documentary, like Pat never left. He's always a Foo Fighter, but he just didn't. Right, he wasn't write or playing. do anything. Didn't play. You know, this it's weird. This was yeah. just the four of us. Okay, Dave, Taylor, Nate, me, and and it was just for one hour, one day, and we hung out. And then I saw them like six months later in Chicago. Uh, they played one of those. Uh, Q101 radio shows or whatever and really like I wanted to go because Oasis was playing <laughs> and Gus was like you want to come fuck yeah and you know I got to meet Noel Gallagher I was stoked um, and those guys were super gracious and great you know they're nice people I like them <laughs> that's awesome because of the documentary the back and forth they show a lot of the guys who auditioned yeah. for the band there were some um, they were doing some open auditions mm-hmm. um, where like people were doing coming in for like 15 minutes or something and basically it was like show me what you got and I'd met some of the people that were trying to do open auditions, and it was, wow. I mean, God bless the Foo Fighters for doing that, because 
that would have fucking made me insane. Oh god, I've done that. It has. It did make me insane. It was like, yeah, it was literally just like every dude at Guitar Center that yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. That's and so interesting. How would you even know like how this guy's right? Like yeah. everyone's playing the same songs. Like, yeah, the well, same... It's, it comes. It's like anything. It kind of becomes about the guy a little. Yeah, you know, the personality a little bit. Yeah, can you hang yeah. literally? Right. Actually, interesting enough, Chris, who is who took who got that gig, yeah. was my roommate at the time. Oh wow. So yeah, he went <laughs> off to do that audition. I mean, so and you were like, "Good luck." Yeah, actually, I didn't. I don't think I found out. About, I don't think he told anybody. I think he told us after he got because he was still in no use for a name, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he probably didn't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> These but guys, he, are but he was living in New York, so I don't know how committed he was. Uh, There's um, there was one kid that I'll never forget because this was this. I my heart was just bleeding for this kid. He was he had his guitar out in this other room and he was waiting to get his fifteen minutes. And um I remember he was I was looking at him play these songs, like kind of practicing in the in the room, and I'm just like, what the fuck is he playing? Like this is really bizarre. Like I mean, I think I just learned that song, but <laughs> that doesn't look like it. Right. And uh and so I was like, okay, whatever. Um and so he went in, and when he came back out, he looked like he was going to cry. Oh. And I was like, what's going on, man? And he was like, I learned all the songs in these alternate tunings, and those guys just were like, what the fuck are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> and But again, to their credit... These the Foo Fighters actually gave him another shot. They were like, "Can you just like pick three oh, songs God, and learn them in amazing. like standard E tuning?" <laughs> and like, I wouldn't have tolerated it. Yeah, I would have been like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here, kid. <laughs> Seven but, string drop D. Yeah, you, right? I mean, seriously, like, I I know that sounds stupid, probably to people who don't play guitar, but it 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 just seemed like the most unnecessary thing. Like, why would you tune your guitar in some weird way to learn a Foo Fighters song? It's yeah. not, but don't like, you feel like it was like when you had like. Like when Guitar World would like transcribe songs, sometimes I would be like, th- th- they're like making it so much harder. Like it should just be in a regular tuning. It's like a bar chord, and instead they're like, it's in drop D you just, minor. Or and you're some like, alternative, like all you have to do is detune the B string, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can play this riff. Like really? I mean, the um, <laughs> why would I do that? But then when you, but you know what? The key that's all BS because you go back and like watch the actual player, and they're not doing all that yeah. craziness it's like this guy couldn't figure out how to play it that way without <laughs> actually messing with the tuning is what it is yeah like, no, i'm pretty right. sure in most it, although there are some crazy tunings out there that people use i did a, a um recently uh so this band owen well it's not really a band it's a guy but he um another kinsella right yeah 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 mike kinsella he's also in joan of arc but yeah <laughs> but so he was coming to new york to play the uh what label is he on? Polyvinyl? Yes. Yeah. Polyvinyl's uh, CMJ showcase. And uh, they were he had, he's having a new record out, and they really wanted him to come promote it and all this stuff. And so he calls me up, and he's like, all right, so I got this idea. I was like, cool. And he's like, I'm coming to New York. I'm going to play this show. I don't really want to play it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he's like, basically, you know, Polyvinyl, they have all these like rock bands now. And I just feel like I'm going to be like an idiot going up there playing my sad sack songs by myself. So I want to I want to form a band and I want to play with a band. So I'm thinking, I love Owen. I want to play these Owen right. songs. This is great. And I'm like, dude, I'm in. <laughs> and he's like, awesome. Can you put together a band? And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. And he's like, okay, my idea, though, is that I want to play What's the Story, Morning Glory from beginning to end. And I was like, 
yeah, I kind of thought he was taking the piss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was, I, he knows, because he knows I love Oasis. And, and so I was like, if you, are you serious? Because if you're serious, like, I'm totally down. And he was like, yeah, but you can't tell anyone. Don't tell my label. I don't want anybody <laughs> knowing that this is what we're doing. And so we, uh, yeah, so I put together a band and we learned what's the story of Morning Glory from beginning to end. And um, But I was, I was thinking when we we're talking about learning these songs that one of the things that really helped was YouTube, which, you know, which would have helped in the Foo Fighters days. They have some complicated songs. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so YouTube helped me learn the lead to Don't Look Back in Anger. How did the show go? Uh, I, it was hilarious. I mean, we'd ne- that was the other thing. We'd never practiced, really. <laughs> We literally all just learned the album and then just showed up and played it. And it's on YouTube too. So really, oh, it, it actually, <laughs> it actually, I think came out sp- like kind of surprisingly well. Like, I, it was there were so many amazing moments. I think that you don't get as a band because you've, you're so practiced that when you go on stage, you kind of just know what it's going to sound like. Mm-hmm. But since we'd never practiced, we had these moments of wonder that you can see on YouTube, like. Uh, there's this drum fill in Wonderwall, and Chris Daly, he played drums in Texas mm-hmm. Reason, he played drums that night too. He's in Jets too. And Jets of Brazil, yeah. And he played this fill like so spot on, and you could just see Mike Kinsella just hear it and just go, oh! And like you hear him, like you see him turn to the bass player, Paul Koob, and just uh, lip the word, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, and then when the lead to Don't Look Back in Anger came on, you know, I think he was like, is he going to do it? Like, what's, you know, what's going to happen? Right, he right. didn't know, we didn't know what we were going to play. And I start playing it, and you just see the smile on his face, like, just ear to ear. Like, it was such a brilliant time, like, to, to do that. This seems like something that should be organized and done on an annual basis, where it's like, okay, get different people from different bands or different players. Okay, okay, you guys are going to do What's the Story of Morning Glory. Okay, uh, you guys are going to do um, the first Rage Against the Machine out. You know, like, it's like, like you, but you record, you practice it on your own because you have the records, you use YouTube, but then you don't play it for the first time until you're on stage. Yeah. And just get, you know, three bands, you know. Because if you're a semi competent musician, it's not going to be awful. So just get into it. Get into the surprise of it all, the wonder of it all. And what was great, too, is that the audience didn't know what was happening. Like, we came out and started playing Hello, and everybody was just like, okay. And then we played Roll With It, and everybody's like, oh, this is hilarious. Okay. Oh, the and audience then, didn't know what th- that's what you are going to be playing? Yeah, Mike was very strict about it. He's like, I don't want to even explain what we're doing. I just want to play it because I love this album. That's funny. And, and you know, I guess, like, afterwards, the record label kind of was like, dude, you couldn't have played one fucking Owen song? <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't know. Pretty artsy. Where'd the, the writing come into? Had you always written and it just <clears throat> sort of happened? Were you asked to do it or you did it on your own? Both. I mean, I did it on my own. Like, I actually, in before I dropped out of high school, um, like, I was failing out. And they were, <laughs> this is really funny, by the way, because I teach college now. <laughs> but, um, but bef- so before I dropped out of high school, I was kind of failing out because I just didn't care. Um, and they had suggested that I do this program, BOCES, which um, I don't even know what it stands for, but it's essentially like um, vocational school. Um, so, they, so half of the day I would go to um, this other campus and do something vocational. So I decided to do lithography, which is offset printing. Mm. And I convinced my uh, instructor to let me make a fanzine. And, you know, the class would print it, and then I would I would write it and lay it out, and the class would print it. 
And so literally it was just a little bit of like, it was a little sweatshop. It was great. And we would, (laughs) and, and I would make this fanzine and then I would take boxes of it home and then I'd go to shows and sell it. And I started making my, my little money that way. Was this antimatter? No, this was crucified. It was a skinhead thing. (laughs) And, uh, this was like, yeah, so this was in like 1989. And actually what's funny is Eddie from Taking Back Sunday, he was in the same school. He was in the classroom next door. I don't know what his vocation was, what he was trying to do. But um, we would take our breaks out together and talk about like the sheer terror show we went to or something. That's awesome. So so the right, so then from there you've written, then Alternative Press after that or was there, is there a Because yeah, you weren't writing for well, AP when I was there, no, I don't think. No, I I mean, so yeah, like I, I, Antimatter was from 93 to 95. Alternative, Alternative Press was like 94 to like, I want to say like 98, 99, I think was when I started petering out, like writing for them. And then I was doing, you know, random stuff. Like I helped when Ego Trip started, which I love. The Ego Trip guys have really done amazing things since that magazine. Um, and one of the guys from Ego Trip became a music editor at Vibe. So he was like throwing me stories there. And like I would keep on kind of. It was never a career for me. Like, it was always just like, I like to do this. And when I have the time to do it, I will do it. I've never been like a super ambitious person. I just kind of do what I like. And then, you know, hopefully it pays my rent. And we also worked together, I forgot, on that Thursday documentary. Right. Like, that's a perfect example of like these random things that I just take because they're fun and they pay me a little. And then, you know, I can keep moving. And you get to deal with Tony Brummel. Right. <laughs> He's an old friend. <laughs> that dude, man, he bought out so much ad space on Fuse years ago. Oh, yeah. He made so many bands. The first time Texas is the Reason broke up was at Tony Brummel's house. And really? Yeah, we were sleeping there one night in Chicago on the um, Texas Sensefield tour. And for some reason, um, Garrett just woke up one morning and was like, I'm going home. I want to see my girlfriend. <laughs> we're like... Dude, we have like three more weeks of tour. <laughs> I said, I don't care. I'm going. I was like, if we go home, we're breaking up. And he's he like, okay, home? fine. Wow. <laughs> I love how that's the first time they broke up. <laughs> right. We we were on the edge of breaking up since we got together, really. And really, if you read the um, – Mike Gitter wrote our first bio um, for our 7-inch. And the whole bio is basically like, this band's going to – fucking implode <laughs> they're awesome but you better get it while you can <laughs> right people don't realize that half the issue with having a band be successful is show up like show up to practice and then the second is don't break up yeah yeah it's true it's in that order pretty it's much just that show up don't break up <laughs> proceed with awesome if you can you know i mean i've never been good at the don't break up part <laughs> like <laughs> i can't be in a band i mean also like i just I've always had that conflict. Like, I don't, I don't like touring. I love, like, making music. I love yeah. writing music. I, you know, I'm not going to say I love recording because that can make you want to kill yourself. But when you're done, I love it. Yeah. But touring and just promoting yourself and all that stuff, like, I can't get into it. I toured for, like, three weeks in college in a band. and was like, I'm, I'm good. What's your band? Oh, God, it was awful. That's Let's the worst hear, thing I ever did. Let's hear they about were, it. Oh, oh, dude, I was the third drummer, so I can't take responsibility for the name, but they were the Ice Cream Socialists. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of cute. We were big and huge in Roanoke, Virginia. <laughs> huge. 
So recommend it if you like. Ah, uh, let's see, Ramones. Okay. Uh, you know, early Green Day. You know, first half of Kerplunk. <laughs> the first half. That second half was a letdown. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> Sold out in that second half for sure. <laughs> you know, previous show. Uh, yeah, it was. Re- and but this you'll find funny is I was I never like called myself straight edge. I just didn't drink. Right. And then get to my senior year of college and you know broke up with a girl and was like fuck it you know and went over to my room and went tonight and i handed him the keys to my car i didn't have to say anything else he went oh my god <laughs> and we went to a bar and i got really drunk i didn't know what was going on um and by drunk i mean like you know three beers right and uh so then I'm in the band and I'm like, well, I can I can drink and play. And I was the drummer and there's just, no, <laughs> you can't drink and play if you're the drummer. I've still never been really drunk. It's fun. <laughs> I don't know that it is. It doesn't, I don't think it's just yeah, my yeah, personality. You know, I, 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 you know let, me, let me rephrase. I, I was confused having a buzz for drunk. You know, having a buzz was fun. That's totally pleasant yeah, to me. Yeah, pleasant. Yeah. That's correct. That's what it was. Drunk right. was bad because I was falling over and picking things up it did keep me from having to pack up the car with because i would pass out like on the drums and they would have to pack all the drums and jump <laughs> in the car so i never had to pick up anything so it created the the two drink drummer rule so they must have loved you <laughs> but that became part of the bio which was at the end of it and we turned our straight edge drummer into a drunkard in three weeks <laughs> <laughs> but i feel like you probably get that buzz from other like i feel like i do yoga every day like i get that buzz during yoga or like when you were meditating all the time like i'm sure like it's like the same equivalent in some ways it's no it's different i mean (laughs) (laughs) nope i've known people that don't drink because they don't want to lose control well okay let's talk about this for a second because this is this is here's the thing anybody who knows me and definitely anybody who's been in a band with me knows i am a fucking control freak i just i just am um and Thanks for letting me sit here. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to move you. But <laughs> um, no, I mean, so yeah, when I get, when I feel like I'm about to get to that point where, well, let's put it this way. When you get drunk, there's no way to turn it off. There's no off sw- switch, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so if you want it to stop, you can't make it stop. There is no bigger torture for a control freak than that. Like, then feeling like, make it end, and it can't end. Like, that sucks. So, for me, it's always, like, three drinks is, like, good buzz. I'm chill. Why do you need that extra? Why, Jonah? Why? (laughs) Man, I hope you've never tried acid. (laughs) No. Are you kidding me? That sounds terrible. Because then you're just like... (laughs) Uh, Here's a segue. And, and And I hope I'm phrasing it correctly. So... I, I interviewed people on television. You've interviewed people uh, in print, but then you started working with here with yeah. uh, one of my best friends. Uh, Eric Feldman runs a, a network, a gay on demand network, mm-hmm. and uh, his second is our mutual friend Mike Dubin. And how did you get hooked up, and what did you do there? Um, well, actually, they interviewed me on one of their video podcasts when my book came out, and. I don't know. I guess, like, they kind of thought that I read well on the camera kind of thing, like, um, or maybe that I'm articulate or something, um, because they didn't audition me for anything. They were mm-hmm. pretty much like, we're doing this show. We want you to be a co-host. And I wasn't doing anything else, so I was like, sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that that's kind of my MO, right? Like, I'm always looking for, like, what's the thing that I haven't done? I'll do that. 
And so maybe that makes me seem like an inconsistent person, but like, um, I don't know. I just follow my muse. But when you, <laughs> but when you, when you got this, I mean, was it full on hosting? Well, yeah. I'd never hosted before in my life when I got the first job. I didn't know what I was doing, like how to hold the microphone, like what a teleprompter was, like how to do all yeah. of that. Was it a crash course for you? Yeah, it was literally just they threw me in there and I was like, go. And I was like, okay. And, you know, maybe I was more successful in some segments than I was in others, but I feel like I've kind of got the hang of it now. I don't know that I like it necessarily, to be honest. It's, 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 um, I know this is going to sound weird, but I don't actually like, um, being the center of attention. Um, like I'm a total narcissist and like I get that, but. You like to be the center of your own attention. Yeah, exactly. It does make me uncomfortable when people kind of like are staring. Um, so being on the camera is a bizarre thing for me. And I do, like, my brain starts going crazy when I'm doing it sometimes where I'm just like, oh, my God, people are watching. <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, it's an interesting world to get into. I mean, Eric's a good guy because he's been doing it for so long. He knows how to do it. Yeah. And he cuts through the bullshit very quickly. Um, and, he can, and he'll say it just that caustically. Um, but it, I think that's phenomenal. So are you still working for here? Yeah, we just shot, like, three episodes yesterday. And what's the show? It's called The Deal. The deal. Just, oh, yeah. Uh, it's just a kind of like – I've kind of tried to distill it because I felt like they needed some sort of tagline. So I kind of added something to the script because I was like, okay, we're basically talking about culture, community, and style. Those are the three things that kind of seem to be what this mm-hmm. show is about. So that sounds good together. Let's do that. Right. Um, but I think it's a, it's a cool show. I've had like uh, interesting segments, you know, like going to like the Museum of Sex and like uh, – I went. The, I I actually really loved this one piece I did at the Stonewall Inn, which was really interesting for me. Uh, it was like the birthplace of the gay rights movement, yes. and uh, and 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 the teleprompter stuff is weird, but it's interesting. It's a, I just like experience. I'm just always looking for an experience that's new, mm-hmm. and I think like that's the thing. Like when people ask me about like Texas, and they're like, you know, why don't you guys keep playing shows? And it's like, well, there's nothing new about that. Like the 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 thing about doing the shows in 2006 um, when we did get back together for a weekend was that when we broke up, like I felt like we were always just like a rock band that um, never got to play like a big, big boy rock band show. Like, you know, like I wanted to do a big boy rock band show where we do every aspect of production. We hired lighting, we hired, you know, we had our own sound. We had like a, AV intro we you know we did the whole thing to make it like a real concert that was basically the idea and it was just us and that's it and this was a new experience to me so we're going to experience it like that but then once we did that it was like okay well I'm good done, <laughs> done checking the gate moving on right got it so that's how I felt about TV too like I took out I'm I'm doing this this is interesting as long as there's sort of like new experiences to have with it I'm I'm cool with doing it have you learned a lot kind of about gay culture that type of stuff from that gig or was it more mm-hmm. no i mean because i'm like a fucking voracious like reader and like you know i'm an explorer i love kind of like finding out everything about everything yeah <laughs> so yeah no i mean but it's it's more of a chance for me it's more like a difference of presentation you know because i've just been a writer and when you're a writer you just kind of you know sit in your room by yourself and you know, so this is kind of just a new way of like expressing things that I might have expressed in writing um, and being forced to kind of articulate it live and in person. And, you know, 
sometimes it's successful and sometimes not so much, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, that's my entire life. Yeah. Well, me and Stephen always have this thing where Stephen was like, I don't know how you write this stuff. I was like, what I do is so easy. Like you like interview like sometimes super boring people and have to make them interesting and have to have all this time in your head and you're reading this thing and you have to look at that. Like when I would be a guest on Fuse, it was like, I was like, I can't believe how much stuff you have to remember. Right. Like, I don't know how people can do it. I think it's like such a unique kind of skill set. I do actually realize that um being on television is kind of a lot like teaching school like i a lot of the same kind of like functions that i have like when i'm in front of a class like if i'm talking to a class like i'm also thinking about like you know the clock i'm thinking about like what i need to get accomplished what i need to articulate today what um you know is everybody paying attention is somebody on their cell phone like you know those types of things it's kind of the same you know kind of mechanics i think when i'm in front of a camera i'm just like okay am i rambling is this too much time i got to think ahead to the next question like what's going on so um it it feels natural on some level now that's amazing you just made a connection for me that i never grasped onto i was a teacher and and, uh, i sub in la for years but i subbed in one school so i was middle school and whenever whenever i would host something i learned very quickly they would say, all right, you have 18 seconds, go. And you would have to get it out in 18 seconds and figure out the clock. Never figured out why that just became as rote for me. Like whenever I'll, I'll do a segment or someone say, how long do you need? Like a minute and a half. I go, okay, we'll do it and it'll be a minute and a half. But that makes total sense because as a teacher, your eye is always on the damn clock. How long do I have? What do I have to do? How do we have to f- fill this in? Stop moving. I saw that. <laughs> you know I saw that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one thing you learn as a teacher the first time you go into a classroom is your teacher saw everything. Yeah. They were just like, I'm just not going to bother with it. Totally. Just pass the stupid note. I don't care. <laughs> well, you, you, you quiet? do pick, you pick your battles. You pick your battles. Yeah. Like if somebody, you know, is if somebody is being blatant, then I'm just going to like have to embarrass you and call you out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like other if you're being like nice about it, I can be nice about it too. What are you and where <laughs> are you teaching? Uh, I'm in the CUNY school systems, uh, Mm -hmm. City University of New York, and teaching writing. Right on. And how did that come about? Right on. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing on forever. W-R-I-T-E on. Well, here's here's the beauty of higher education, is that all of the things that I've done in my life um, pretty much don't mean crap anywhere else. But in higher education, it's awesome that I've written for magazines, that I have a book, that I've traveled the world, that I've done all these things. Like these are like things that you want to put on your resume. Like, you know, the person who hired me, uh, you know, said, I think it's amazing that you've been to all these places because, you know, our school system here is really diverse. It's a public university. There are a lot of people from other countries and cultures and, you know, these are all people that you've probably been to their countries, you know, like that's valuable. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it started mostly because I went back to school when I was 33 and, uh, and just decided that I was going to, you know, just burn my way through college. (laughs) It was one of those things where I was like, this is a new thing. I haven't done it. I'm curious. Let's go. And I did it. And so, um, and, and the end game was always to teach. Like I wanted to be a teacher even when I was a high school dropout. It was teaching was something that I felt like, um, and specifically teaching writing because Mm. even as my 
kind of career, quote unquote, unfolded, I realized that my ability to write made everything possible. Everything. The bands, you know, obviously the journalism, uh, you know, all these other things. But literally everything that I've ever done is a byproduct of my ability to write and to think critically. So if I could do something to pass that on, that's what I wanted to do. And as I get older, also, like, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't really want to write for Alternative Press. <laughs> I mean, no offense, Alternative Press. Love you. <laughs> but, but you know, like, it, there was a point where it was like, and it was the same thing with bands, too. There was a point where I was getting older and everybody was just staying the same age. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? Like, I'm getting left behind. <laughs> well, this so. is a great, for you, I would say, a good second act. But after all the things you've done, this is fifth, sixth, seventh. This is yeah, seriously. a lot of cool things. I'm just, well, I'm just, you know... I'm just happy that I don't have that kind of fear that people have of doing something new. You know, like I've met so many, I met this guy at a party once who was like 35 or something and he was freaking out because he was like, I gotta, I gotta have a new career. I'm stuck in my first career, but I can't change now. I'm sitting there like, are you kidding me? Do you know how old Tim Gunn is? Tim Gunn reinvented himself at like 70 you're 35. Get over yourself. You know, <laughs> that's what I, that's what, you know, the way I think like to me, I don't, this isn't my final act. I don't know what I'll do next. Like, I'll just keep going as long as, you know, I'm not on the street starving. Like I'll just keep going. Right on. We'll keep us posted. <laughs> well. I have to say we've done a lot of podcasts and I know, uh, Mike, you were in the room, and Brad, you had to run out and do some stuff. But, man, that was good. Yes. Norman is a very interesting guy. Like, his life is, like, I I wish I could have his outlook on life and that everything is just a great learning experience. I wish I could have successful bands I was in like him as well. Yeah, but the bands, you know, aside from Shelter, had a good run. It seems like Texas The Reason was more of a horror story than not. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, would you would you want to have a band that was super influential that everyone liked that just went away due to distress, or a band that was consistent? Um, you might be in both right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but on a smaller scale, I feel like. <laughs> what about you, Mike? I'd like to be in a band. I think that everyone, at least at some point, was like, "Dude, that's a great band." And then we, even if we just totally disappeared, I'd be like, "Hey, that dude was in that band, or you were in that band. That was awesome." I kind of would like would like that. Brad, you've done both. Yeah, well, but only like for uh, the music business are the only people that knew my band. What? No, what? Do the, were the Goops just flat Nobody out on a major? Nobody remembers the Goops. Nobody remembers. As long as Mallrats is on <laughs> cable, people will know the Goops. I, I feel like the problem is that you know so much about music that that you think every band is is sort of on your radar, but it's. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like I do that too. I'm like, oh, you're in this band, and someone's like, no one's recognized me in like eight years. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you guys are huge, right? And like, it's like, dude, I deliver pizzas now. Oh, how when we went to see uh, Jawbox at uh, Jimmy Fallon, and the guitar player from the Promise Ring was just standing there, and I was like, dude, it's a guy from the Promise Ring. <laughs> I was just dorking out like a like well, the, a dork. Now the sad thing is that everybody in the music industry knows that the Goops, but then most kids or people that were kids in the '90s know me from the clowns which is sad (laughs) wait i'm not familiar with the clowns clowns for progress okay famous for having kim basinger wear one of their shirts they were they were just uh, they were really nice guys that originally had they wore clown makeup and did kind of this like 
it's semi rockabilly thing. And when I joined, I kind of insisted that I couldn't wear the makeup because <laughs> I mean I really like the guys. <laughs> Did you spray people with Fago? <laughs> <laughs> I mean I love Dino's voice and I liked you know I liked their songwriting and I liked the band. I just couldn't go with the shtick. <laughs> the first time we sh- and Dickie Barrett of the Boston's was a big fan and I remember the first show that we did with the Boston's after I joined and we show up and Dickie's like so uh. No uh, makeup anymore. <laughs> he's like, he's visibly bummed out. And Dino's like, Nay, I know, Dickie, but you're going to really like this band. This is really, I mean, the songs are better now. And yeah, and, ah, Goop, he's something else, you know? And, like, oh. and Dickie's like, okay. I'm thinking, like, oh, we're going to get kicked off the tour. <laughs> Dickie Barrett was like, every band on this tour needs a gimmick. <laughs> we have the dancing guy. Yep. <laughs> you guys have the makeup. Our drummer wears a hat. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, so uh, we'll see you guys next time for uh, the awesome that is going off track. Yeah.